out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastorm. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the band Shelley Ann Orphan, because I recently caught up with Jim Tell to find out more about life, love and poetry. He, alongside Caroline Crawley, formed the basis of the band that started in the early 80s right through to the end of the 80s and then they reformed and did another album much later on 2008 in fact but anyway this is the interview yes i won't give too much away but it is gripping and um with sort of exciting news that uh, jim is going to be making music again or has started anyway so there is that to look forward to anyway look after several minutes of casual chat we got down to that very exciting subject where i ask about the early formative years jim take it away that's, that's a, I, funny i was talking about that today to someone but you know i kind of grew up with music right from being little so when i was small there was sort of always music in the house so i listened to you know what was my dad basically putting on either the radio or um playing records and the records would be anything from classical to kind of light jazz to easy listening. But then the back, because I was born in 1960, so the backdrop to all that on the radio was obviously the Beatles, the Stones. And so one of my probably earliest memories, there's two that I remember really well. One was Downtown, Petula Clark, mm-hmm. and the other was the Tokyo Melody, which was the Tokyo Olympics. And they, and they're, I think Tokyo Olympics is, I think it was 62 or something like that. So that, I don't know why that melody stuck in my head. But in terms of me having my own sort of epiphanies, I had a, uh, an elder brother. So I used to listen to his records. And so when I was 10, and this is me not being cool, this is just because it's, <laughs> you just listen to, he had things like the Velvet Underground. So I was hearing things like that as pop music, just as songs, not as anything dark and yes. wild. But my own stuff, you know, started with T-Rex. So Mark Bolan was my first sort of hero. Um, it's sort of Hot Love, Ride a White Swan, that, that period. And then obviously into, you know, and he stayed with me because I mean, I, I love Tyrannosaurus Rex, but I got into Tyrannosaurus Rex once I got into T-Rex. Yeah. Um, but but obviously things like Bowie and things like that. But I also, you know, loved, I kind of loved everything. So I loved soul music as well, you know, because it in those days, it you know, I didn't know many people that were strictly into music as such at school. In fact, there's only me and one other boy that used to go around listening to the chart rundown at school with a, you know, having to share one of those one earphone things to see <laughs> you know, one. Um, and that, that was at primary schools. Uh, so I was probably... 10 going on 11 I guess and then when I first got to secondary school there was just really only a handful of kids which was weird because that would have been 71 I guess um but I was enjoying music and buying records by then anyway um but it was everything so there was no thing about is this cool is that cool particularly it's like what was in the charts um you know if you liked it you liked it you know but I had I kind of have my, he didn't have to, it was only really, I mean, I can remember being aware, I would say 73 to 74, that I'd get on the bus with, say, T-Rex or David Bowie or Roxy Music under my arm, and then there'd be kids from the grammar school which would have things like Emerson, Lake and Palmer and 
maybe Pink Floyd. You know, there was this was this sort of thing where things like Mock the Hoople and stuff were, were kind of secondary school kids. <laughs> <laughs> and I was a secondary school kid. So that, that's how it seemed to be for me for quite right. a while. Yeah. And then punk, punk happened, which was quite a confusing thing because, you know, I still liked all that other stuff. You know, so even, even some of the what would be like soul music. I love the Shy Lights, for instance. They're, they're one of my favourite soul bands and, and they just had kind of chart soul hits and things. But then punk came along and was kind of confused all that because it was a bit like, we're well, not supposed to like that anymore. But I wasn't like that. I still carried on liking it and enjoying punk, but not really being a punk rocker in it, just enjoying the vibe of all of that. But, oh, but then again, just before that, or well, similarish time disco in here. So I was enjoying disco as well. I said, but I love Barry White. I'm crazy about Barry White. And so all these things just fell into a pot. <laughs> and it's like, which one am I supposed to go with? And I guess some of some of it was um, which gigs can you go and see? Who can you actually see quite easily? Well, it wasn't at that time, it wasn't easy to see Barry White, for instance, or even the Shy Lights, because they went sort of touring in Bournemouth where I come from. But I'd see some of the other stuff that I loved, you know, that's Bowie and and other things, but and Mock the Hoople. But you know, so you sort of you started having allegiances to certain groups, and but I still loved all those records, and I've still got them now. You know, yes, it's, well, it, when it's, it's, still, it's it's interesting what you said about the kind of almost that kind of cliche about the class system and and prog rock, really, wasn't it? It was the sort of you know, I would imagine the audience as well was all sort of kind of boys and young men, and now they're all sort of very old men, sort of going to see Phil Collins in a wheelchair. You know, well, the rest yeah. of the time they're sitting down. But it was it was that kind of thing because my because my brother was seven years older than me, so he's a bit older than you. But he was really into prog, and and he had the collection of you know Yes, Genesis, Wishbone Ash, Barclay James Harvest, and the solo work of Rick Wakeman and. And he, he, you know, forbid me to go into his room to play them. So obviously, I would go in his room and play them when he, you know, wasn't about. Which, which exactly, my brother would forbid me to play them. I'm not going to Lou Reed, any of those things. Forbid me, so he'd go out. Like I can remember with what. Sorry, I'm cutting there. But I just remember that with one album, the Berlin album, Lou Reed. I was crazy about Lou Reed. You know, not really knowing the dark side of it, just Transformer, obviously. But Berlin came after Transformer. I remember my brother bought it, and he wouldn't let me hear it. So I waited till he went out and I remember spending a whole afternoon putting the needle backwards and forwards, back and writing the lyrics out. You know, think, great, I've got them. And I remember putting the record back in the in the cover and then suddenly just dis- discovering a lyric sheet. So I said, oh, but anyway, that's how important those things were. You know, they were that really important. But yeah, so my brother forbid me to you know, kind yeah. of um, well, it kind of made you vaguely, you know, smart as well as slightly crooked because he, it was to the point where I know that he would look at his records and I knew I had to touch them really carefully. He said, for God's sake, you mustn't put your, you know, you mustn't, you know, I knew he would touch them. I couldn't put my fingerprints on them. So you had to get them out and put them in because yeah. he would like be looking again. Have you been in my records? You know, <laughs> yeah. and so you had to be really light fingered at a young age and also have the awareness of being looking out the curtain just in case he came back quickly. So you you'd give yeah. him five minutes to get down the road and then it would be like okay he hasn't forgot anything he's gone and that would be it so yes it was it was kind of strange but yeah I, I sort of listened to that but also my parents 
at that stage, when they got married in the 60s, 50s, I think, you know, that they were, you know, we were sort of from the, the depths of Suffolk, you know, in the countryside. So right. culture really wasn't that much of a thing, really, to be honest, as well as being working class. So they, they didn't really have, I think they, when you got married in those days, you didn't, you just had to sell everything and they'd just start with a home and no debt, no mortgage, nothing, you know. <laughs> and it was only in the 70s, a record player appeared and my brother had these great records and they, they bought a few and, and one including the, the the carpenters which i played endlessly and became obsessed. Love the, carpenters. the, the lyrics of the carpenters have stayed with me ever since and i always thought yeah, well, that is the most beautiful things they really are yes and like, i think if you like the carpenters to... you're going to love the you know the smiths and joy division it just you know you yeah. can't help you know it's... it means you've got a heart I thought I thought you were going to say you really liked um when you said Petula Clark, I thought you were going to say you liked Scylla Black and uh, the work of her actually when you mentioned Petula Clark. I like I like the odd thing. I mean, you know, I'm not you know, in fact that you know I've probably got two or three singles. Um and I remember Scylla Black um thing. So Scylla Black's main reference to me would be Something Tells Me, which was in the 70s, which was probably 70, 71. So Alfie and those sort of things. I probably would have heard, but they hadn't registered quite at that point. Yes. But yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. but I do also just on that point with, with Scylla, and I still think about it because there was a sort of program in the 60s called the Scylla or Scylla show, show or just Scylla. And the introduction was um, a song which was, um, oh no, God, no, I can't remember it actually. Step Inside Love, that's it. Yeah. And, and it was the most dramatic uh, kind of song. And then you think, oh yeah, you know, 30 years later, you hear kind of the grunge, you know, the structure of grunge records. And you think, actually, Scylla Black had it already sorted there with this kind of quiet, quiet, and then doof, loud. And then I realised it was written by Paul McCartney and John Lennon. I Oh, yeah, why it was so yeah. good. It's, it's a great song. Yes. So when did it's, you start, when did an instrument sort of appear in your life? Well, you know, I'm not a natural musician, so, and it wasn't as if, you know, we had money at home to, to buy things. We didn't. It, uh, we, we had a piano at some point, which I didn't have access to, but it was probably about 1975, but I'd always already felt that's what I want to do, that's what I want to do, but I'm not a natural, I'm not one of these people that give them an instrument and give them some lessons and off they go. So, you know, I knew that was going to be a bit tricky for me, but I made myself learn guitar, you know, eventually, and I probably, I think the first one I had was one of those cheap Woolworth guitars. Right. And I just sit, sit in my room and, you know, and just try and, I don't know. Nobody ever showed me anything. So it took a long time before I was actually, I, I started to get chords together probably within, you know, two or three years, you know, and, and performing them myself. And, you know, and then, you know, I just started thinking, you know, I need to be doing something a little bit more serious than this if I'm actually going to do something. So I made myself book into a demo studio in Bournemouth and wrote some really rubbish little songs, but it made you suddenly think, oh, right, okay. This is what happens. It's what you need to do. Right. You were serious, weren't you? So when you got to 16, did you leave school in 1976? Yeah. You, that was it? Yeah. That was it. That was it. No college, no uni, nothing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I did, honestly didn't know what to do. I Music, I was passionate about music, but, you know, sort of history makes you think that everybody was out forming bands. and that. People started to do that a bit more when punk actually happened. But even then... You tend to think everybody was doing it. They went. There was quite a few people doing it. And so for me, and, and also finding just people that might resonate with you, and I didn't really, 
you know, at that that point, you know, lot of kids I knew were into sort of heavy rock and stuff, you know, that, you know, I could take a bit of it, but I was much more on the, you know, the sort of, like I said, the sort of Lou Reed, T-Rexy kind of that side of stuff. And kids were into Thin Lizzy and um, Black Sabbath and stuff like that. Yes, status quo. Um, yeah, but then having said that, I liked Status Quo in the, the very, very early period, you know, just because they had chart singles, you yes. know, and Paper Plane and things like that. They just seemed, it's like pop music, isn't it? They're on top of the pops. And their psychedelic um, period as well, which was great in the 60s. Yeah, yeah, a funny sort of group like that, really. Yes, I can see where Spinal Tap sort of might have got some of their ideas from really from that, yeah. from that front with their kind of early image but um so then by by 1980 then you were 20 I mean were you sort of thinking did you still have dreams of, of music yeah it was, it was just slow slow going. so my school reports used to say slow begets there in the end so that's a bit <laughs> of how, how it was you know I um I was moving towards, I was doing demos and, you know, really rubbish though, but knowing it was rubbish. So it wasn't, you know, I knew I've got to get better, I've got to get better. And then uh, then I moved to London, you know, I'd met Caroline at that point. We'd moved to London. Basically, before I left Bournemouth, I, I'd, I'd gone to the youth orchestra people and just said, oh, I need a cello, a bassoon, a flute and a violin, you know, uh, for a concert I want to do. And so they put it out to their young people and, and some four came through. And then because I'd suddenly made that move, I thought, oh, my God, I've got to write some songs now. You know, so I'd say, oh, there's a rehearsal on Saturday. And I'd give them wherever we were rehearsing and they'd turn up. But that all that week, I'd have to try and write a song and then arrange it as well. And it's ridiculous because I don't read or write music, but I would sit down with one of them playing the notes on a cello, on a guitar for a cello or a violin or whatever it was. And they painstaking right out, and then we'd rehearse it. So we did that till we had about ten songs, and I booked the town hall in Bournemouth um, for a concert, and just went round everyone that I knew and didn't know very well, and just oh, I'm playing this, you know. And it was full when <laughs> the night came, which was great, and it actually worked. I pulled it off, and it was like blimey. But I somehow I still knew, but it's not good enough, and it's not. I don't want. It's not going to work in Bournemouth. What, what I'm trying to do at all. Right. It's too narrow-minded it's just you know they were you know the music scene there was and I was never part of it but it was very sort of competitive and sort of you know they, we had who did we have there was a group called the tours who they were a sort of punk band who nearly made it there was Biz International who nearly got signed it was all that sort of thing and they said there was um sort of battles between those sort of bands I thought well, I don't want to be part of that and I didn't feel part of it so yeah. I knew that going to London was the thing I just I, I was really felt adamant I didn't want to be part of some little local thing because it didn't feel real almost I can't explain it very well but maybe I just had higher aspirations I think in a way I just thought no, I, I wanted to make you know, music that wasn't just so that people, I can say to people, oh, I'm in a band. It wasn't really like that. It was something I passionately wanted to do and I knew there was something in there. Yes. And it needed to come out somehow. And it took a long, yeah, it took a while, but when it actually clicked, so by the time I moved to London, I started getting musicians together, same sort of thing in London, going around the colleges and the first round 
wasn't working. I was writing really crap songs and I knew it. I knew it, but I, but I knew that each time I wrote something more and started around, it was getting better, it was getting closer. And then just one day I wrote Cavalry of Cloud, which was our first single. And I arranged it for a string trio and rehearsed it one Saturday. And I thought, oh my God, that sounds absolutely great. I can't believe that's, that's come out. And I wanted an oboe on it. So the violinist family an oboe player we rehearsed the next Saturday and I just thought, oh my God, I've arrived, you know, and, and then Caroline was joining in there with vocals and, and I really did. And I thought, I don't care what anybody else thinks in a way. I know I've written something which doesn't sound like anyone else. That's it. That was quite a key thing to me. I didn't really want to sound like anyone else, despite there may be influences that come through, but I was very clear. I kind of wanted to feel that I'd done something that was original rather than just my, the things that I love. Um, and that's sort of how that that part of it started, really. Blimey. That's quite that's quite the story, isn't it? Because mostly, because the kind of cliche, and this is what I thought, but then doing these interviews has really sort of galvanised it. That that early eighties period, there was a huge amount of kind of unemployment, and so a lot of people were had just thought, well, and there wasn't the particularly let's still still go to university phase. You you know you had to sort of do your O levels, CSEs, mm. no O levels, A levels, and then you got there and. Mm. And uh, you seemed, you know, like quite your life was going to be much easier. Whereas most people were stumbling around, feeling a bit sort of jaded, and it wasn't going to happen. So there was like a lot of unemployment, and obviously there was a job seekers, job seekers allowance, and the enterprise allowance schemes. So all these kind of bands I've interviewed, they went, "Oh yes, I went on that. We had the thousand pound, we passed it around the band, and we all got on that for a year, and, and you know had a quite a good time because they could focus at least for one year on playing music as well as obviously getting quite drunk a lot of the time because you're sort of young, and then." you know the first single and it's like oh my god we've got a single you know we've recorded something and if it was a little bit peculiar you know you almost could guarantee John Peel would play it and then possibly get a John Peel session which you know it's the, the you know it's obviously a bit of a cliche and it all seems quite quaint now but that that gave everybody that right okay let's go to the next one let's well, get that, the album that's what you towards. That, that, they were the things you aimed towards you know, to try and get a session on the radio. That was, John Peel was one of them. And, you know, that was partly why you were doing what you were doing in a way, because you thought, well, that, that's one of the natural springboards. You're either going to be playing around everywhere and trying to get on the geek circuit and get get going that way, or you'd sort of aim towards a session, you know, which is kind of what we did, really. You know, we, we did that. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, when you're young, you know, things don't seem so bad. You know, it's only when you sort of, grow up a bit more and you look at the politics of the time and the, you know how grim it was for a lot of people but when you're young you, you, you're quite resourceful yes. you know you find of doing things and getting things near you know you're quite excited about life you know stuff out there going to move into London was just fantastic I felt you know so much freer and just able to express myself you know I didn't in Bournemouth you know Bournemouth is a miserable place. I loved the sea. I loved to get to the beach in the summer when I was a kid. I absolutely loved all of that. But it was quite a miserable, cynical sort of place. Like if you thought you wanted to do something, people didn't like it. You know, like, it was just, you know, not pleasant. So I was quite happy to leave. You know, I was quite pleased. And, you know, when I was younger, you know, it's just that horrible thing of the 70s, you know, being chased by skinheads and all that sort of thing, which was unpleasant, you know. And, in London, I'm sure it had that stuff going on, but it didn't feel the same. It felt different to me, maybe because it's much bigger, so you wouldn't come across it so much. Yes, you seem to be 
amazingly com confident at that age or yeah you know to sort of relocate without the kind of structure of a, a university degree where you get that kind of you know some some sort of support with you know like these are your lectures this is where you can live for the next year and then you'll have to find your own place for the following year and but to go and not have that kind of I suppose yeah. comfort oh, I mean it's I, very yeah, brave. It's, it's, it's a mystery. well it's a mystery to me because I was quite introverted in those days you know I wasn't an outgoing kid and I think I used to hike, hitchhike up to London sometimes you know to to see gigs and things and and I think that's how I just thought, well, if you can do that, you know, the next step might be moving there. And it took me two or three attempts to finally get there. Um, but I think it was that really. I think it was just, you know, going somewhere it's so big and wide. And, and, you know, school was stifling for me. I went to a really horrible, rough school. And, you know, I just wanted to get through it, to be honest, and leave when I left. And to be honest, when I got to London, I just learned so much because I didn't really have much money. So I used to, well, me and Karen used to walk everywhere and, go to galleries, go to museums. Time Out used to have a section at the back, free events, so we'd just see what free events there were. And sometimes it'd be cinema showing a film in Canada House or something with free wine and sandwiches or something. <laughs> you think, bloody hell, we could get something to eat out of this as well. And it'd be things like that, and, and just walking around and suddenly just being exposed to things. And then, because it's London, you suddenly, there are other people walking around that you recognise, like, you know, musicians and things, you know, we'd see Steve Strange and even Boy George and, uh, you know, sort of roughly around the areas we were living and it would just seem like, oh, right, okay, they're just sort of normal people really and they're in London, but they're famous, you know, and you just, it made you think, oh, okay, this is better than just hanging around Bournemouth. And well, yes, absolutely. And did you feel, you know, a sort of, because, you know, during that early 80s period, you know, we had that post-punk world and there was obviously the new romantic and the Blitz kids, mm. but then kind of indie pop, you know, with the Smiths that kicked in in 83. And then there was suddenly all those bands that, that created a bit of an indie scene, you know, whether it was the Copto Twins, but it could have been, every, you know, early everything but the girl, yeah, yeah, no, the Wolf Hands, then the go-betweens, the Triffids, you know, the Chills. I mean, suddenly there's this kind of wave of really, you know, beautiful kind of, groups and songs but they're quite different i mean you know though it's called indie it's like some people say well does that mean the indie label or the, or because you're on an independent label is it more of a i think it's a state of mind really so um yeah did you feel that that kind of a certain excitement sort of hearing you know different bands because they were very different to the punk period or yeah. the rock period you yeah, know so that you heard you know liz fraser's vocals and you went wow that's unusual I yeah think yeah it, it, it was like that i mean we when we first went to London, we used to go to Camden Palace, me and Caroline, we used to dress up you know, to the nights and go there on Steve Strange's nights and things, and uh, which felt great, actually, just because we felt, because oh, we we were sort of doing that a little bit in Bournemouth, and that was just before New Romantics anyway, and part of that is just like the whole pop thing, I think, it's the Mark Bowen thing, the David Bowie thing, that you kind of grew up through that, and you sort of drag it along with you, and um, so we were doing that, and, and in those situations, you were seeing people at Camden Palace who then became kind of names. But so I don't know how this relates to it, but I remember buying Sugar Hiccup by the Cocktails, uh, a 12 inch, and we always used to play that before we went to Camden Palace. And yeah, it wasn't the sort of music that was played at Camden, but it felt right, and it just felt like all that sort of stuff fitted into this whole thing that was going on, even though they were all different. So there's a new romantic stuff. 
Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, funny, funny time, but it was somehow it all fitted together. You know, I, it's so hard to think how, but it, it just seemed to, I think maybe, because I used to buy the papers religiously, you know, Enemy and Melody Maker and Sounds in those days. Sounds was a bit rockier. But, you know, so I used to read them, you know, cover to cover. Because I, I love pop music. I, well, I love music, but, I, you know, even now I just love it. I just love <laughs> reading about it. I love reading biographies and, you know, just hearing people's processes and, you know, I, I love it. And I was like that then. I couldn't get enough in a way. Yes, absolutely. It is It is kind of it, kind of boggling, really. So then, you know, in 84, um, you know, you get a session with Richard Skinner, which is... Well, that's, we, we used to, what, what we used to do, we used to do our demos and uh, we'd get the odd gig. So we'd, we'd, we'd do the odd gig here and there. You know, I don't know how we'd get them, but we would. And we'd play and we'd be playing with other bands usually. And they used to come up to us after and say, God, you guys are amazing. And we think, well, that's, that's nice. Yeah, that's great. Other people of the same ilk era, you know, appreciating us. Um, and that, so that happened with, uh, we played with the Jesus and Mary chain at the ICA before they sort of made it, but I think maybe their first single was out, I can't remember. Was that their first gig in London? It might have been the first gig in London. It was, it was, they weren't famous at the time. They were just, so their gig was probably about six weeks to two months before, I guess. And in that period, suddenly I was reading all the time fights and this, that, and yeah, they're happening at their gigs. And I think, oh God, we're on the same bill. We've got strings and the audience are going to hate us. But we played that gig and, and actually they loved us. We got an encore and I thought, blimey, that's amazing. We went off and then I remember they came on and it was like a riot. <laughs> but Jeff Travers was at that, that gig from Rough oh, Trade. And did you meet Alan McGee at that stage? No, I only think I only met Alan McGee once, you know, and that was later on. Oh, never mind. Uh, but no, but he, I think he, I think he, well, Ivor 4AD, you know, because I know Ivor relatively well now, you know, we're still in contact and uh, he, he always kicked himself that he didn't sign us. And I said, but I spent an hour talking to you on the phone once, you know, he said, I can't remember. And I said, I focused, I used to phone everywhere and try and get through. And I got through to him once and we were just talking about all sorts of music, almost everything except us. You know, and then when he saw us and heard us, he, he really wanted to sign us, but we'd already signed to Rough Trade. And he said, I can't believe you know, I missed out on that. But anyway, with, sorry, with the sessions, it was, um, we used to hang outside the BBC, um, giving out tapes or phone on a Friday with our dole check. We'd, uh, I'd get like five pounds worth of five P's or two P's where I'm going to the phone book and go through the back of the Radio Times looking at all the sort of editors, editors and producers of different radio programmes and try and get through. And uh, on this one occasion, you know, we used to give out tapes outside of the BBC. And so let, let me get this right. It's funny, I, I used to know this story so well, but basically I, I, one night we, we phoned the BBC. It's about eight o'clock at night. We used to do it randomly. We obviously going past a phone box, and we just said, "Can we speak to John?" Pe Somebody picked up the phone and said, "Can we speak to John Peel, please?" And uh, it was a woman's voice, and she said, "Said, um, you know, why are you calling? Who is it?" And we said, oh, "We're the Scrooge Shelley author." And suddenly the voice changed. So, well, this is John Peel. 
you know, if you can get down here in half an hour, give me your tape, I'll give it a listen before my show. We're like, bloody. So he just happened to be walking past the desk at the front of, you know, Portland Place there. And the security guy wasn't there, he just picked up the phone as he was passing. And uh, anyway, so we went, rushed down there and we had a quick chat with him and he said, I haven't got time to listen to it now. Um, I'll leave it at the desk for you tomorrow for you to pick up and I'll, I'll tell you what I thought of it. And anyway, we rushed down the next day. He'd written quite a long letter on the, in the card inside the, the tape box, but the only phrase I remember from it was that it was too elegant for his vulgar taste and to try Kid Jensen. So uh, that's, that's how it happened. Yeah, so the next day, uh, we were waiting outside and Janice Long came out and uh, so we said, oh, Janice, do you want a tape? You know, and she said, oh, yeah, yeah. And she was, that seemed quite interested. And then about 10 minutes later, Kid Jensen came out. And uh, so I said, oh, Kid, you know, um, John Pill thinks you might like this, you know, do you want to have a little? And he said, oh, yeah. And, then he, and I just happened to say, oh, I've given one to Janice Long. And he said, don't say yes to Janice before, you, before I've heard it. So I thought, oh, blimey. So anyway, he said, phone back tomorrow. So we phoned back tomorrow. And we spoke to John Waters, his producer. Who just said, yeah, it's be at the Maid of Studios at such and such time. We were like, what? He said, yeah, yeah, you've got a session, you know. And it's like, oh my God. <laughs> so that's how that came about. But it was because we used to hang outside the BBC and give out tapes. At lunchtime, sometimes we'd go to publishers, offices, agents, and just play for them, like with a string trio and oboe, and, you know, in their lunchtimes. It was, and it's a bit like rehearsing as well, in a way. It's kind of, it's like a little mini gig. To yeah. the people. And when you, after you, d you did that gig with Jesus and the Mary Chain, were you kind of on the indie circuit in the London scene? Were you? No, but well, not not really, but we would start just, we'd started having a conversation with Chaz Wally, who was uh, into song publishing, which was um, part of Warner's. And he he was just totally intrigued by it. He, he had, can you remember the men they couldn't hang? Yes. That was he was kind of involved with them a lot, quite heavily. That was his main group. But he was totally intrigued with us. And so he'd always be phoning us. I'd say, look, do you want to come out for a curry or something? You know, he just found us enigmatic, I think. And we we was like, why? <laughs> we don't quite get it. Anyway, and so he said, like, I really want to sign you. So basically, that then things started to move up a little bit. Thought, oh, somebody's interested. Then Warner Brothers said they wanted to do, WEA said they wanted to do, two singles with us and lucky enough and I don't know how I just thought no I think it's because I read the music paper so much I kind of knew how things worked and uh, to a certain degree and I just remember that there'd be loads of groups who'd have a single out and it wouldn't do very well and they wouldn't get their second single or the second single would flop completely because there wasn't so much promotion around. and I thought no we definitely need an album we definitely need an album deal and they weren't offering that and that's when, with the Jesus and Mary chain thing, Jeff Travis saw us and he he basically, we went back to Bournemouth that Christmas to see our folks. And when we got back, scribbled on the sort of notepad by the phone was uh, phone Jeff Travis, phone Jeff, all these messages, you know. So we went to phone him and he was just like, I'll give you anything you want, please sign with us. And I was like, blimey, somebody completely gets it. Because everywhere else we've been, they, Nobody said, oh, it's rubbish. They were just confused because it didn't fit into it. didn't have drums. It didn't have, they couldn't place it. But Jeff Travis didn't seem to care about that. He just said, I think you're just incredible. And we're like, oh, blimey, okay. Yeah. And that's it. So, and, he, and he offered us a three album deal. So it was like, great. That's kind of what we need. Because we didn't feel we were the finished article. We weren't, 
we we kind of knew our shortcomings really you know we didn't think well, this is it we knew we still had quite a long way to go you know yeah. as, as people and musicians you know I, you know but it, but it was yeah once you're signed it, it becomes a very different thing it's, it's funny it, it sort of changes where you realize you're the property of someone else as well and their expectations Yes, absolutely. And at, but then at the same time, you feel like at least there's a progression as well, which must feel quite a relief, like, okay, we've got to the next space. We're not still... Yeah, def definitely. But then it's always like the next thing. So the next thing was having to do an out. Well, first of all, it was a... Uh, they wanted to try a single. So that was Calvary of Clown. We tried that with Anne Dudley from The Art of Noise. Yes. Uh, and she was great. And she was lovely. And the recording was quite special in its own way. But it was too big. It was too big and shiny I said I, I said I don't really want to sound like that and lucky enough you know Jeff Travers kind of agreed he said yeah I understand and so the next thing we went which was big and shiny and we didn't ask for that either we ended up doing the album at Abbey Road you know which was like bloody hell you know first album in Abbey Road you know which was we didn't ask for it somehow Rough Trade got a deal because they would try out a new digital recording set up Mitsubishi machine and they, we were sort of like the trial yeah. for that so they got a really good rate uh, but it, it was it, and but for, to be honest from then on it got difficult because suddenly you've got other people involved that want a hand in what you're doing they want to sort of put their mark on it as well whereas naively we're thinking we just want this really good acoustic sound very natural without too many frills you know yeah. uh, so we used to do our demos, and our demos still sound lovely, you know. They're, they're you know, because I always thought you've got to be where you are. Don't try and take too many leaps. Sort of um, achieve this much sound-wise, make sure that you feel good about it, and then you can go on to the next bit. Think more about what you're going to do. Yeah. Um, that, that, you know, that's how I was thinking about it. I think so. Well, that's kind yeah. of in, it's really interesting because, well, there's two things because you're on the same label as the Smiths, which obviously must have felt like, you know, we're, we're in the same, you know, ballpark as one of the most influential bands of the 80s at that stage. And for five years, you know, the indie world was just, you know, centered around the Smiths, really. So that must have been fun. But also, I've done quite a few interviews <laughs> circling around the world that is Suzanne Vega, interestingly, and, um, and was kind of fascinated because when she first started, they, you know, she was playing a lot of kind of acoustic shows in New York and hadn't been signed. And then someone thought, actually, she's got, you know, potential and started doing demos with us, Steve uh, Dabo. And then when the record label said, yeah, we want to sign her, it was a bit like, actually, I still want to be part of this project because I'm the producer. And it was almost like he was aware that he could have easily kind of gone, right, we need a big producer and a different sound. It's like, no, we want to keep the same quality. So for two albums, the first two albums, you know, it was almost a bit of a struggle, but they did them, you know, and he was part of it with Lenny Cave and Patti Smith. But then by the third album, you know, he'd slightly gone and there'd been another producer. Mm. So it was, it was interesting what you were saying about that process, because it's it's like, no, she's an acoustic singer-songwriter. She's not suddenly, you know, this is the 80s. You could imagine them thinking, right, yeah. big producer, big sound, okay, you yeah. know, makeup artist, we need to, you know, we need a bit more Madonna, yeah. that look. And it was like, no, no, yeah. she's more, you know, she's not quite that that way in the moment so it was a little bit of a tension i think from what i could tell from the musicians or you know and the producer i who think wanted... it's quite common. i think it's really common especially with a you know an artist just starting off you know people wanted to get hold of them and turn them into something that they think they should be they can see the 
you know the nugget of gold there but they want to polish it more and do it in a certain way and actually the 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 prize is actually what it already is that's why you enjoyed it in the first place don't mess with it you know let it develop later on perhaps but initially if that's what you like that's what you like yes so with with because also you get you know in the 80s the other big program that we all watched on a friday at half past five was the tube as well and you were you kind of managed to get yourself on there which i'm not surprised really considering you're on rough trade so what was your experience of going up to newcastle and playing there like it was amazing. It was, uh, I mean, before you uh, before you go, you have to send them a showreel of what you look like live. And at that point, our live shows, we used to have a painter on stage painting a picture. And the reason for this is one, you know, I just thought, well, we look quite static with strings, just kind of thing. And, you know, although there's a visual thing, because Caroline was beautiful, had big red hair. And, uh, it's still, you know, I thought we need something interesting. So we we had a painter he used to paint a picture while we were playing and he'd always finish it by the end of the set you know and it was it wasn't some pretty thing he'd, he'd have spray paints and all stuff we'd be gagging on stage oh, bloody, oh, there's bloody fumes but the other thing we started to do was we'd have uh his brother used to like to dress up and so he'd dress up in weird things like, so one of the main things we had was jesus on a cross so he'd like to see a long hair and a beard and he, he wore a loincloth and he'd be up on this thing, like, you know, which is quite a visual thing to have, you know. Yeah, and well, we, absolutely. And, uh, but anyway, so we sent the showreel off to the team and they just said, there's no way we can have that on because we get repeated on a Sunday and well, there'll just be so many complaints. And I remember thinking, what? Yeah, Frankie goes to Hollywood on there. I remember they were on there, they had girls or, or guys even in leather and whips and stuff. Oh my God, <laughs> Jesus on a cross. And that's far more offensive to the public which is great to be honest. But anyway, so we couldn't use that, which was a shame, but doing the actual show, I mean, it was, it was incredibly nerve wracking, but it was, um, it's just one of those really weird things where suddenly the, the, the camera's rolling and off you go. It's weird. It's just strange, you know, and you kind of go up on a train in the morning and you come back that night. <laughs> it's like, but the other thing about that is I remember, because I lived in London still at that time and, I remember the next day being in Camden, Camden Town, and so many people going, good on you, mate, saw you last night. And I'm thinking, how can you recognise me? One one programme, you know, and then I realised, God, that's what we're all like. You know, you see something, because I do it. I, if I'm in London, I see, oh, that's that person off this, that's that. You do, you just pick up on things. And so that was quite a strange thing. It didn't last, but that particular <laughs> day was, yes. you know, it was... And, and, and Jules Holland, when he introduces, Paula does one and then Jules does the other one, he's saying that, you, you know, the guy doing the draw painting isn't even sometimes listening to the, the music. Yeah, that on. yeah, that's true. <laughs> Is it true? Yeah. Well, I, I, can, like, he, I mean, he, he's, he's a great artist. He lives in New York now, but he, he's a great artist anyway. But he, um, yeah, I, I can remember on the tube going up there. We had two painters, in fact, for the tube. That's how we got around the thing of not being able to. Well, let's have two painters. So they were painting the same picture, but half each, and then it was supposed to come together at the end. But I remember them on the on the train, the pair of them, the other guy, a guy called Matt, particularly singing opera. And that was quite odd because they really knew opera. So they were singing there. You know, most people be drinking you know, on a train going up to whatever, and they were just singing the, the opera. And I think that's what he was listening to on his Walkman. <laughs> so 
<laughs> that was great. Yes. Did you keep any of that artwork? Was that sort of kept at all, or was it just all chucked? Which, which artwork? Oh, his art. No, that he used to sell sell his pieces. So I used to do gigs. At the end, he'd sell it, especially around Europe. It was great. You know, if we played in Europe somewhere, they, you know, he'd sell the picture afterwards for a few quid. God, that's such a good idea, actually. God, yeah, that's brilliant. So then, with the new album, with the the first album, you you know, you sort of guess you've not guessed, and you've got people from like um, Kate Bush's brother, and and also, is it Danny Thomas the bass? Thompson. Danny Thompson. Well, yes. Danny Thompson came about because I love Nick Drake. And so I knew Nick Drake, even in the 70s, I was already into Nick Drake. And uh, I loved Danny Thompson's playing with John Martin as well. And in fact, Danny Thompson's played with everyone, even including, congratulations, Cliff Richards, things like that. He's on everything. He's a, a David Sylvian, he's everywhere. But he was great. You know, and I just remember him being at Abbey Road and I walked in one morning and there he was stood there. He said, what do you want to use me for? And I said, said oh, I really like what you've, you did, uh, you know, Nick Drake. Said, you like Nick, do you? I said, yeah, yeah I really do. So they've got some unreleased stuff at, at, at uh, Island Records. I'll get it for you. I'm like, sorry, because I thought that's all there was. But he did, true to his word, he got me a cassette. I think everybody's got it now. But uh, he was great. So, and then Paddy Bush came about because Hayden Bendel was the engineer on our album and he had been working on the Hounds of Love album with Kate Bush. and so I'd said to him, I think, could we get Kate Bush to be on the album? You know, and he said, well, get her a tape. I've still got the letter. And she said she loved it and she loved one particular track, but she didn't think there was anything that she could do on it. But her, her brother would like to do something. So he came along for a day and just played a few different things. Yes. Um, the, song, the songs were all kind of written and arranged, but then he, he plays some didgeridoo and a couple of other little things, you know. Yeah. And Stuart, Stuart Elliott, the drummer, he we'd only had drums on two tracks. And he was a lovely guy. He was in Cockney Rebel, but he was also in Kate Bush's band as well. So there was quite a few Kate Bush people around, actually. I think partly because it was Abbey Road, that sort of probably a lot of the musicians they used around them. And because of Kate Bush had just been in there recently, it was probably all fresh in everyone's kind of mind, you know. Yes, 87. It was a great year for music. So then when, when the album came out, what was the reception like? And, and did, it, did it meet your kind of expectations? Well, there was a lot of people hated us, you know, hated it. And then there was other people that loved it. Um, it, was, it was difficult. It was very, you know, very difficult. Uh, I just think a lot of people just couldn't get it. The music press, I remember we got a live review around that time, the first live review we, we'd had, and it was half a page of Melody Maker. It was something like the first phrase is like, this band is shit. There's nothing worse than the band, you know, being arty, but they're shit, something like that. And I was like, oh, bloody, because the thing is, if people don't know you, they think, because basically the, the reviews were saying we were middle-class music students. I left school at 16 with three O levels. I didn't really, I wasn't, you know, at that stage of my life, I was still very naive and just, you know, so there was all this stuff put on us as if we were from, you know, wealthy backgrounds and music colleges and all of, just because of the direction we'd taken with our music, which yeah. was done in a spirit of trying to be original. And to be quite honest, for me, it's punk in the, in the sense, I only think that later on in my life, but I think, 
well, punk was trying to change things and do things a bit different. Well, it was no different to what we were doing in that respect. Yes, absolutely. And also at that stage in the 80s, we had the work of Momus. And and mean frankly, he was he was also pushing the boat out on lyrics and content and yeah. and yeah, art. You know, I, I would say, you know, there were there were kind of a lot of people like that coming along. But again, I don't think they, they found an easy audience in daytime radio or even nighttime radio or the music press really did they well you know people you know i i think it, it probably did hurt for a while but i remember our manager coming to the door that morning after reading that review and was all smiley and you know i said well, why are you so happy and he said he said wow well, you've seen the paper i said yes yeah, it's, it's awful he said no it's not he said they've used a whole page to slag you off now look at all the other reviews in the paper they basically think you're going to be quite important and to be quite honest, once I sort of looked at it that way and sort of saw the reviews we got later on, which were better, I thought, oh, it's, that's how this works as well. Mm. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a strange thing because, yeah, you yes. hope that you're all in it together. <laughs> you realise you're not. You're sort of out there on your own and, you know, it can fit, you could feel if a journalist didn't like you. You know, there'd be that as well. We had people that sort of championed us. Well, Chris Roberts liked us a lot at Melody Maker, and that, that was good. But even at Melody Maker, I remember uh, everybody, we were just about to get that chance you get where you get the front of Melody Maker and two-page spread inside, and we were at that level, and we got it, and we did our two-page spread, but the editor at the time said, if they get the front page, I'm leaving. And I was like, oh, God, you know, so that's, you know, that's just not right. No, I mean, I, I just often wonder what some of those journalists must feel like, what, what they wrote and, and the effect it must have had on people. I, some, I wonder if many people feel really, I wish I'd just not done it quite so much in the way that they had, you know, if you know what I mean. Well, I think that, you know, I think at the time they were trying to make a mark for themselves, you know, that they wanted to be seen as that kind of writer or, you know, maybe they look back at it and I doubt if they regret it, you know, no. as part of it's part of history, isn't it? And you know, I can't imagine they think, well, I wish I hadn't been like that with that band. I know. I can't. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a tricky one. I mean, on that other subject, I remember when the NME started just going for Morrissey, and I remember thinking, they've kind of, I don't know, I mean, it's a complex thing, <laughs> the whole Morrissey thing, but there was something about the fact that they kind of seemed to encourage the worst side of him, you know, and it's like if they just had left it and not sort of started saying, right, he's got a Union Jack, he must be racist um i don't know it just seemed to be the beginning no, no, i remember it i remember it myself because i mean i started off not liking the smiths when i first signed to rough trade but not because i hadn't really listened to them properly but i just thought oh it at that point it really um fed into the horrible times with thatcher it just felt like oh i don't want to be you know reminded of that through music but then i remember jeff travis said but if you listen to them properly and i said well probably not really so he gave me a load of records and stuff and i was painting my flat one weekend and i thought i'll listen to it and by the end of the weekend i was in love with them i just <laughs> thought i is something else i hadn't really got it before um and you know and and you know i'm i'm into animal rights and animals and stuff that's a quite a big thing with me and, and morrissey was and i really thought oh great as an artist that really speaks out about these things which I was really pleased about. So, but as the right wing stuff started growing, I, I still just thinking, no, I don't believe it. It's the press trying to push him in that, that direction. And I still believe that probably until probably five years ago. Now I just think, oh, I'd love to talk to you because I want to know what's going on. 
well, I don't understand. You know, I really don't because he he's such an amazing guy. You know, I think surely you don't really believe this stuff. You know. And yes, I know. I'm, I'm... It's disappointing when when you have heroes and stuff, and they do stuff like this. I'm not saying he was a hero, man, but as somebody I definitely thought, wow, what an artist, you know. Uh, but, you know, it's like Brian Ferry, you know, he's into fox hunting. It's like, I love the first Roxy Music album to death. Please don't do that to me. It's hard, you know. Yeah, I know. You, we, we, we don't need to... I feel a bit disappointed with people's uh, dietary kind of choices sometimes just on that front. It's like, oh, God, you don't need to kill an animal. <laughs> I know, it's hard. When you're in that camp, it's so hard because you're like, oh because you write so brilliantly and passion your music's amazing and it's coming from some place that you know yes and then you find that yes you probably yeah and then you realize probably Joni Mitchell you know likes a good steak and you think oh no don't do that Joni yeah I I know but that's you know that's most of the world isn't it so you've got to think of it like that you're you're a bit of a minority (laughs) <laughs> it's it's slowly changing but then the interesting thing that and I mentioned this a little bit earlier with you know Suzanne Vega you know she does the first album everything's going really well and they go well we might sell 30,000 copies if you're lucky and it's like oh my god it's successful right we need the next album you've got no material what are we going to do how did you then in your way you know you you sort of suddenly had that kind of that's the release then you have obviously the kind of the fallout with all the you know the reviews and stuff but then you know there is the next album to you know to uh create and how does what's what goes on for you there at that point well so at that point <clears throat> where whereby it had felt you know within the band me and caroline were were kind of equal the way we were seeing um things just changed more where where i think they were dismissing the music but liking Caroline so visually and her voice and so suddenly that became quite a quite a a thing that you know became a focus I think and um I remember with the first album inside me I was thinking right that that's done that's great the next one's going to be a a progression of that we'll get better at what we're doing it'll be whatever we've learned here we're going to take into the next one but what happened was we suddenly found ourselves, I guess, because of the the industry you're in, people want a hit or they want something that's definitely going to be radio friendly. And we didn't really write with that in mind ever. We never thought that's what we're going to try and do. Mm. But we just, but I, I think I thought to myself that, well, I love pop music. So that's probably going to spring out at some point anyway, within our writing. And it sort of did in certain ways, you know. And so on the next album, we had a couple more songs with drums, but then we had electric guitar, which we hadn't had in before. And Caroline's voice was pushed much more to the fore, which yeah. was right, right. It was the right thing to do, to be honest. It, it's, you know, her voice was definitely a feature of the band that was huge. It's one of our identities. But it sort of hadn't been up to there, but it was moving in that direction. So I think that was the right thing to have happened there. But but suddenly we were writing things. I think uh, on Round Table on Radio One. I think when we released Shatter, the the, the panel on there uh, chose it as record of the week or something. And I thought, well, that's right because it is quite poppy in its own. It's still strange, but it's kind of got something which is kind of radio friendly about it. 
but still it, it was still difficult to get by that time that the, the phrase pre-raphaelite fruitcakes had been released and so every review we got the you know basically the pre-raphaelite fruitcakes are back and it's like <laughs> can we ever get over this and to make it worse having been pissed off about all of that the video for shatter you know that the, i remember there's guys from ar came uh did the video and they chose the everett millet painting of ophelia you know the pre-raphaelite drawing in the water and you know proposed it to caroline and Car so yeah okay which i guess that's fine <laughs> for her but i'm like what are we doing? <laughs> this is ridiculous. We should be going as far away from that as we can if we don't want to be called it. So it kind of sealed our fate with that, I think. So, but also at that time, because it, you know, there was a lot went on at that time, but Rough Trade were really unhappy with our manager at the time when we did Century Flower album. So before it was released, um, you know, they were having big arguments because he also managed the wooden tops. Right. Been a lot, lot of bad blood between the record company and the manager and and you know they just came to us and said we're not going to release your record unless you sack him and we're like wow. what? yeah it was that really that that wild and it was because it made all the show what, what was your manager sort of roughly doing that sort of could create such hostility well i can say that <clears throat> his demands on rough trade for the wooden tops he demanded a lot of money a lot for an indie band, a lot. So he had it written into contract that I think something like a hundred thousand pounds has to be spent on an album, including videos, I think as well. But that's a lot of money for an indie label, and especially yeah. back then. But yeah, because they had Warner backing as well, Warner Brothers, I think, in other territories. And so I think it was coming from there. So it got quite heavy, and we were kind of dragged into that. And we weren't spending anywhere near that sort of money. But having said that, I, I think. They still thought they were spending a lot of money on us, you know. Um, it was nowhere near that, but I think, and I can understand it from an indie point of view because I think they mm. want to get their returns quite quickly and, you know, recoup. And, uh, but uh, so it was that really, and then they basically came to us and said, "You have to sack him." We're not, and we were like, "Oh my god!" Because that, what, that's not the sort of people we are. <laughs> we're like, <laughs> that. So like, I'm like, how are you going to do this? But then. I don't know how it happened, but they started showing us what he, he'd been doing for us and, and how much money he was taking. And it was quite a lot, you know, compared to what we were getting. And we just thought, well, okay, you know, this, this, that doesn't feel right. And we just took the plunger. So we sacked him and he was, wasn't happy about that. But to be honest, the moment that he went suddenly the doors opened for us again completely everywhere suddenly we started getting offers got an uh, offer of playing in japan and different things but more than that the cure tour came came along and uh i'm fairly certain had we stuck with him he had big demands we want this we want that we want this bus we want and we were just like yeah we're doing that they said there's a horse box a converted horse box you can go around in europe in that we're like fine that's fine, not a problem, you know, because this is what we wanted to do. Yes. We wanted musicians playing our music, getting out there, enjoying being in a band, you know, the whole thing. I loved it. I loved my music to actually, oh my God, we're doing it. Look at this. We're suddenly playing in stadiums and, you know, what the hell are we doing here? Our little band, you know, and it's, it's fantastic. But 
you know, if we, I think if we hadn't sacked him, then, I, you know, we, you know, I don't think we'd have done that. No, honest. God, that's interesting. It's like something from The Godfather too. So, um... Yeah, it was, it was really weird because we weren't the sort of people that would just sort of think about sacking someone or, you know, no. it wasn't like, it was quite harsh to be honest, but we must have felt quite strongly at the time after we'd had certain things shown to us and explained to us and, <laughs> and thought, well, actually, maybe so, you know. It made it easier. Because <laughs> yeah. in that time, there is cause quite a few record labels. There's the, the cartel, the rough trade, everything sort of, there's a dark cloud of, of things all going slightly poorly at this stage, isn't there, in the, in the indie yeah. world of music because of, you know, bankruptcy and stuff like that. Plus also there's a kind of new, I mean, when the, going back to the Smiths, when they broke up in 87, there was like, you know, the, the birth of, not birth, but the ecstasy came along. And then there's the sort of the whole excitement with dance music, which was, you know, everyone got very excited with, um, uh, you know. And, and then, you know, we, we did have sort of Sarah, Sarah Records had started. So there was a bit of that shoegazing scene. So there was a bit of sensitivity, which obviously they got really hated by the music press as well. Yeah. Um, but then we had the grunge scene. So how were you feeling, you know, it's sort of 89 with your second album with so much going on plus also you'd been doing this for quite a while yeah um well we we'd had so most of 89 had been taken up with um the cure tour so we had that so that was uh so i guess we recorded the album in 88 and then we'd had it sat on for a few months so for us i think it just felt like a relief that we were out that the record was out and also that you felt like now you're working hard towards promoting the record because, you know, when you can get to play to that many people per night, you think, well, even a handful buying that record or hearing it is going to make a difference. And so we did all around Europe for, I think, three months and then we came back. And it was quite interesting because I remember us playing Wembley and things. And, and I remember distinctly, I must bring us back down to earth to, to show where we really are. So I booked us into a couple of nights at the Falcon in Camden, you know, to just to really get your feet back on the ground. This is where you're really at. Yes. You know, just be, you're not going to suddenly go on to do this for the rest of your life. And it was great because they were packed, but it was real. It was suddenly, you know, that's what we're about. But then, so we've just started to get used to, like we're going to be doing it. We did a few gigs around the country in that two weeks small tour and then Robert Smith phoned up again and said I want you to do the American tour as well we thought right that's another step up because that's yes. American and that was great because suddenly you're, you're involved with all the sort of American radio you know A&R radio and all, all sorts of stuff it's different to Europe and then the, the venues are even bigger and it just becomes you know and you're learning all the time as you're going along uh, and also you know the excitement of it and just the you know just watching it all unfold and so so that when all those other things were going on a lot of the time we were sort of quite immersed in that because when you're on tour like that you're in a bubble you know especially if you're on tour with a, a group like the cure who really is a big entourage and a big bubble and uh so we weren't overly aware of what was going on back home yeah. you know and it was that year i remember here i think uh soul to soul was the big hit of the summer, I think, and sort of coming back and, you know, back to life. And I think, oh, right, okay, that's kind of what people are listening to as well at the moment. 
Um, and then there was the acid house stuff, Voodoo Ray and all those sort of things had kind of come through. And yeah, but, but all, all the time, you know, I wasn't ever thinking we're in competition with any of that. I did never thought we were sort of in competition with anything, really. I, I still felt we were sort of out on our own at that point. Did you did you find one particular country or countries really picked up on you? Because I know from, you know, quite a few people said, you know, especially on Sarah Records, they have massive in Japan or another band. I think the Wild Swans are massive in Thailand. So I just wondered if you found yourself going, or Italy is another one where suddenly people go, I don't know why, but Italy loved us, you know. So I just, did you find yourself becoming kind of like, God, they, they worship us here? Not really, to be honest. Uh... <laughs> You know, there were, you know, there, we sort of seemed to go down most of the places we played, all right, you know, okay, there were some that went, uh, but no, nobody, nobody kind of seemed to go crazy. I mean, America was good. I mean, it's sort of everywhere we went in America, but I, I don't th think that was necessarily because it was us. I think they were just quite enjoying seeing another English band. Yeah. Did you, did you, did that tour then? Um, result in the you know the, the century, century century flowers did was that a lot bigger than your you know the the debut album i don't know if it was in real terms to be quite honest you think the amount of gigging that we did at that time with it um it obviously got to more territories yeah and it was received well you know it was actually received very well you know abroad uh I, it, it was hard, you know, it's so difficult to know what was done, what wasn't done. I remember we, we'd done a, um, a version of um, the Brian Highland song, Sealed With A Kiss, when yeah. we did send it and we did it just for fun, to be honest, just happened to be a song I loved. And, and I said, oh, let's work that up. And we did, and we recorded it, but we never really to be put on an album or anything. So at that point, I definitely didn't want to be involved with cover covers unless we were asked to do it for an album other people's albums uh, but anyway we got back from the tour and I remember going into Rough Trade and I just happened to glance up at their release board and Sealed With A Kiss was on there and I'm like what? You know, what what's this? And they said oh no we, th it, we think that we'll get loads of radio play but I said I don't want it out there it was never meant for that it was never meant to go on anything and uh, anyway so the, while this conversation was going on miraculously Jason Donovan released his version of it and so they had to scrap it otherwise we probably would have been in quite a big hardware rough trade I think yes tricky tricky business because um... yeah, yeah I don't think it resulted in loads you know I, I mean I've definitely never seen the returns on it if it did but <laughs> um yeah I mean no I mean I don't think it I mean we obviously gain more fans from it you know, because you have more territories, but yeah. Yes, it's all it's all interesting. So when you you sort of did your this is the third album with Rough Trade. I guess this is the the one that you the the, the did you sign a three album deal with the with yeah. the company? Yeah, yeah. So this is the the last one. What was the atmosphere like when you had to sort of finish tour, sort of get yourself back together into some sort of normal state, and then think right, third album, here we go again. What was the, it was difficult. It was a very difficult thing because we'd we'd got a drummer that we'd used for the live shows who I didn't like his playing particularly, so that's not great. Uh, and it was just kind of 
you know, assumed that he'd be doing the album as well. And I was like, oh, we, we all kind of got on well, but he was a bit of a pain when it came to rehearsing and trying to work up songs that I was bringing. And, and anyway, he, it came to doing the album and I was quite deflated because I thought, oh God, I just I don't know how I'm going to do this with him. This, this guy just isn't what we want. And um, anyway, he, it, it came to a couple of weeks before we were due to go in the studio to record the third album and he just made a demand to Rough Trade. He wanted X amount of money or he wasn't going to do it. <laughs> I was thinking, great, great. <laughs> and Rough Trade said, we're not paying that sort of money. He said, well, we're not, not doing it. And, the great thing about that was that Boris from The Cure was then going out with Caroline and he just said, I'll do it for you. And we're like, I said, sorry. And he said, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. And I sat down with him and it just flowed like, it's <laughs> just like that. And all these sort of ideas I'd said, I, you know, I'd want this, I was working out beats and stuff. Yeah, no, you know, and it's like, oh, I'm there. So Boris did the album. So we felt quite, in fact, we felt pretty positive about that album, but what was happening with Rough Trade was they were sort of going down the plug hole at that point in time. They were in yes. serious, serious trouble. And so we didn't really hear anything from them. Sometimes the studio bill wouldn't be paid and it kind of went on a bit. And um, and then to be quite honest, I didn't even know the, the album was out until one day I just read a review in Q. It was that, it had gone that far down the, the, the line without communication with Rough Trade and they were obviously in a mess. And, yeah, so that, that's kind of what happened there. And I, we did a video for Burst from that album, which got heavy rotation on MTV, but there was no record out at the time and it was kind of being spun. So so we kind of just missed out there because I think that was probably the song that probably would have broke us to a lot more people, especially since then. I've met so many people who said they knew that song from MTV, and, uh, but there was no records out. And so there was nobody plugging it particularly or pushing it. Yes, that's tricky. And also just with the album, because I know you've got, um, I went through a bit of a, a Blozabella phase, as we all do, and uh, yeah. they, they had the great Nigel Eaton on Hurdy Gurdy. So yeah. he, he appears on the third album, doesn't he? Yeah, I, I went to see Blozabella one night in London. I just uh, wanted to go to a gig. It was in Finsbury Park, I think, and I just went and uh, I just saw it. And I thought, oh, my God, I want some of that on, on, <laughs> on an album. So I, I, I got him in and he was fantastic. Yes. Uh, yeah, it was amazing. Uh, so that was great. And then we, we ended up doing a gig with him actually in Paris. Just the three of us, me, Caroline and him actually, which was fantastic. So we sort of arranged the songs around the hurdy-gurdy, which was great. Yes. And then, and then sort of, you know, was the atmosphere when, with, with recording the album good or was it just strange with rough trade and... I Everything was, it was such a, it was, you know, I think everybody has this with albums and stuff, but it was one of those weird things. I, the, the day of the, of the first, the first day of recording for that album, I, the girlfriend I had at the time lived in Birmingham and the recording was in Wales and I'd left early in the morning to go up to the studio and basically I was at a road accident and I was I had to hold the guy and he died. It was a really heavy, yeah, it was a really heavy thing. So I arrived, I know it was a really just a really horrible thing. So the first day, so I arrived at the studio really late and I was covered in blood. It was just the most sort of 
my head was done in to be honest and I remember mm. it was residential and I remember just getting in the bath as soon as I got there to wash everything off me and you know that sort of coloured a lot of it for me because it's like you're doing this thing which is joyous or supposed to be joyous and that had happened and uh, yeah it was it was very it was difficult was that at Rockfield yeah. Studios it wasn't at Rockfield it was somewhere called the Windings right in North Wales and um yeah so that that for me on a personal level was difficult because in a weird way at first people didn't know how to approach me over it because it was, I was when things like this happen you don't know basically I was in shock yeah and I didn't know I was in shock but you you just know you're sort of something's happened inside you because you're trying to process something you know there was a lot well there was other bits attached to it as well that had happened just when that happened uh, which made me think, well, what the fuck was that about? You know, a really odd, odd thing. But um, so that was strange. But obviously, you get through it, you go on recording and stuff. Um, yeah, and yeah, I think what it, I think the other thing was we didn't kind of know what was going to happen when we finished the album because we knew Rough Trade was going under, so we didn't know whether we'd be on another label or whether it'd just be shelved. Uh, so it was it was strange. It wasn't unhappy. But it was, it wasn't, you know, we knew something wasn't quite right so that we didn't feel excited as such. Yes. I mean, some, and some of the, the, the songs on the album, like Little Death, did that feel a bit like, oh, I, I don't really need to, don't need to think about this at the moment? <laughs> well, Caroline wrote that one. <laughs> she actually wrote that. So it was, uh, I remember writing Dead Cat and, uh, you know, it does make you think where, where did that all come from? There was sort of slightly euphoric things in there as well. You know, like Burst quite kind of euphoric in its own way. Yes. Um, but then, yes, it's a, it, it's yeah. a bit weird. Yeah, it's not. It's just, yeah, it's so hard, you know, going back to try and work, unravel those things, because it's a bit like having a psychotherapy session. <laughs> I mean, trying to kind of work out who you were at that point in time with all the things that were going on at the time and, uh how did that affect you is it because of this da, 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 you know and what was it like I mean, working with bill with uh, uh bill um Buck, was it buckham buchanan bill buchanan. buchanan yes what was it like working with bill strange you know do you know him at all no but um he's got quite you know track record and and stuff i've never know i don't know much about him but he's an american producer isn't he no, that's why I asked you. No, no, it's, it's a different person. Ah. Uh, that's why I was asking. No, basically, he he wasn't really a producer. He he had done production. He'd done something, I think, with the Fields of Nephilim. Right. We just don't know him. I don't know even how, know how that happened. And somehow, before we knew it, he was sort of producing. And I, and I... You know, and he was nice. We got on fine, but I just remember thinking, I, I don't know if I'm 100% confident with you know you doing our record. I think I thought about, but nevertheless, we we let him do it. But it so he kind of you, you know produces such a strange thing because what does that mean? You know, is it have you created the sound? Have you basically he was just sort of there, you know, listening and plugging things in, and but really it was usually the engineers that did all the work, right? And, and I, us really and that's how it was most of the time so our, our experience of 
if anybody was deemed a producer, it was um, so even Dave Allen, who did the, the Century Flower album, he wasn't there that much. Yeah, you know, we worked mostly with the with the the engineer George Holt at the time. Um, but yeah, so it wasn't it wasn't bad. It's just it wasn't as this. If you said yeah, without that person, we wouldn't have had this sound. It wasn't like that at all. In fact, it was the engineers. There was somebody called Kiwi at the Windings who. I really liked working with him. He had great ears, he was quick, he was great, you know. Some people have just got it in a studio, they've just got this touch, which is really, it just enables you to, you know, to work, you know, confidently, comfortably. And then sometimes there are those that are just a nightmare, and, you know, just different personalities. It's, it's sort of one of those things that you're supposed to get on with someone, I suppose, in a studio because you're all there together with basically the same aim. But really, if you're not part of the band or the, the original input, it's very hard, you know, because yes. you're there to put your part in, in there, in the pie. And, you know, sometimes you're like, well, I don't really want that bit in there. So It's a tricky one. So did, so did you have a moment then in, in 92 where you all sat down and said, to quote Jim Morrison, this is the end? No. We didn't. It just sort of just fizzled out. By that time, you know, Caroline was getting a lot of attention and she'd done this Mortal Coil as well, which was fantastic. And it just seemed like, right, maybe this is the bit where we have a break and people go off and do other things and maybe we'll come back to it. We, Me and Caroline were still really great friends, so it wasn't, there wasn't some big bust up. Yeah. It's just sort of petered out and Maybe it's because neither of us wanted to say it to each other. I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> but, I, I, but you know, then she did a, a solo album, which I was involved in, uh, with Boris Williams and Paul Thompson from The Cure. Um, and, then it, and then there was always conversations about, we'll do another Shelley North now, but we didn't have a deal. So every now and again, we'd sit down and write together and think, yeah, it's easy between the two of us it's quite you know we we used to have terrible arguments like you do in a band but the, quite often the, the the fact if we said let's just sit down or if i was just noodling around around and come in and start singing and it was quite easy you know yeah. no, i don't think it has that you know and it's it was yeah we would we definitely kind of knew each other quite well you know which um so it's a shame we didn't really get a a chance, you know, just after that, that early period in the 90s to sort of carry on, because, you know, I think we would have produced good material. Yeah. Uh, having said that, you know, you know, I say good material, is it good for us or good for other people? You know, that's how I felt about it. I felt mostly, I think, that most people thought we were okay, but just okay. And I'd be thinking sometimes, I said, well, I'm sure they're really good. You know, I'd be thinking they're interesting and it's Caroline's voice and there's you know, so, you know, I, but then I, because I know my pop music quite well, I just think, yeah, but there's tons of groups and artists that I love that people don't get, you know, and I guess we're one of those, we, I put us, us in one of those categories. Mm. But then the, the box set came out, you know, three years ago, I think it is, and basically it was completely reappraised. And we were seen as, you know, we kind of reviews were four out of five, and we suddenly, they, it just you know time comes around isn't it and we were reappraised and, and suddenly people saw us a bit more for what we were you know and that was nice 
Absolutely. But so you, but then, you know, it was, it was like um, 2008 or 2007. Did you decide or did you get an offer to do another one more album for the road? Yeah, basically one that Lyndon got our back catalogue from Rough Trade and they just phoned me one day just to tell me that they got it. Um, just sort of like a courtesy call, really. And I didn't think anything of it, but um, I just happened to say, will there be any, at the time, me and Caroline had been talking about, I wonder if we can get any money from anywhere to make an album. So it was quite coincidental that call came about. So we never thought about one that lived in particularly. And to be quite honest, the thought of having to hawk songs around to wreck up again was just, I thought, no, I can't do this again. You know, not, I hate the cynicism of it all. And yeah. <laughs> there's loads of stories behind all of that going to see people but um so they found out and it was Derek from one little Indian and you know and I said will will there be any money coming from it you know and he said no no money why because he's quite blunt he's a nice guy I said oh because me and Callan you know uh, want to do another album he said well we'll do it give me a call next week we'll talk about it and the phone went down just like and I thought, what? If we just been told we can make a record, and Carla was on holiday, so I was trying to get hold of it. And yeah, and so we phoned Derek the next week, and he said, come out and see me. And that was it. And so uh, he paid for it. Um, it wasn't overly expensive, but um, and it was quite scary, to be honest, because I thought, oh, God, can we still do this? I don't know, I don't know. You know, as in, right, can I do this? And same for Caroline, I guess, but suddenly... You know, started coming together, and I, I love that album. It's some great things on it. Yes, and, Bor- and Boris is, and Boris is on it, and Charlie Jones. Yeah, yeah, Charlie's been around with us, and Boris is always around with us. You know, he's part of my thing as well. And yeah, it's, it was uh, just fantastic. I, I, you know, I was really happy with it, and the reviews were good. But it was a new time, so it was all about promoting yourself on social media. So we'd done none of that. We didn't understand how that worked. We had no management. We had no, there was no budget, no promotion. There was nothing. We did a handful of gigs, and that was that. Yes, and there you go. <laughs> did it feel weird? You know that period before then. You know the the kind of the decade where you weren't in the band, but obviously making music or yeah, it was it was it was sort of desperate for me really because I I just. I don't know. I was so I was in London for a while. I had a little trio for a while, uh, which wasn't really going anywhere. And I knew it wasn't. And I was just trying to find a way of writing differently. And um, some of it was all right, but I thought I'm not really writing. You know, it wasn't a million miles from me. It's still a bit whimsical and a bit wistful and a bit. But it was, I, you know, just I wasn't quite there. Uh, I ended that story up quite a few things that I thought I might use one day. Um, it was it wasn't a pleasant thing to be it was you know Caroline had moved here to Bath that's where I am now I was still in London we were in contact all the time but in terms of being able to suddenly write together became slightly more difficult yeah it was strange it was quite a limbo period yes yeah a lot of people who I speak to when you know when that moment comes and they're no longer walking down the street being part of a, a group even if they're if they're slightly in that period and not recording or on tour, but which is a bit unlikely, really. Normally you're doing something, aren't you? But that, there is yeah. a day when you're not you've got anything like that, and it's just like you're walking mm-hmm. around, just going, I don't know what the hell to do now. And it, you know, I think quite a few people spend a year feeling a little bit, yeah, just not quite in shock, but just 
like god i'm totally lost. well i think i think i think the difficult big bit is when that happens when you still know you've got something inside you haven't actually fulfilled you know the picture isn't finished yet you know because you know i never f felt we were the finished article at any point i always right. thought we were moving towards it um, and you know, there's so many components needed to be put in place for that but and also you're getting older you know and music styles change and not that we wanted to fit in with any particularly but it, you just realize things are shifting um and and i knew that record companies in general because i knew when we used to first go around they were pretty much influenced by what else was going around like when frankie goes to hollywood was around people you'd go to nr people and they'd want not that, but they want something that's going to have an impact like that. Yeah, which sounds sounds crazy, but that's what they were like. You know, they were. Um, well, I know with the grunge scene, suddenly there was all these kind of terror. You know, in the punk scene. I mean, normally you get the first few bands are great, and then everything else is like, oh my god, that's dreadful. Why? But it's like because the record labels just like, right, that's fine. You know, you could be a bit. Nine any phone sounds a bit like it yeah so it's it's kind of what's the fashion and then suddenly that fashion goes and suddenly everybody wants the next thing you know i think there is almost like a five-year cycle where you know the and it's a little bit to, to do with the sort of the age group of 16 to 18 year olds who want their sound and then after that you know five years the next way want their sound and bands what they used to i have no idea how it works now but i think that that kind of right that's it the smiths are gone or Nirvana's gone, you know, let's get the next band in, you know, and then there's Britpop, right, that's boring now, let's get yeah. the next, you know. To me, though, you know, you know, and I think you're absolutely right, but I think to me, and I think the way that I've always thought about these things anyway, is that they haven't gone, pop music's still quite young, uh, as, a, as a form, I think, so from Little Richard to through to now, I, I, you know, the threads are, they're all there, all the way through, you know, and so I never think to myself, like say for instance, you know, I, I quite like the Flaming Lips, you know, as a band. Yeah. And they're they're a later version to me, and they're nothing like them. But I find a thread of something. They're they're like, for me, probably the Mot the Hoople of the nineties. I can't explain, but there there are threads that go through things and, and attach themselves to things. And I think of my own particular tastes in music, and I I can see where why I like that because of this, because of that, and it's because the, the thread hasn't broken. It's pop music is a young thing. That's why we've still got guitars. And I always want to say, I don't want to write on guitar. I don't want to write on guitar. But I think, but guitars are what we do in pop music still. You know, it's still, it's still a way of getting a song out or, yes. you know, to, it, it's, it's a vehicle we use. Like we use keyboards and things. And, you know, it's the vehicles we use. It's probably the most straightforward thing we can do. Yeah. And then obviously 2016, horrendous year on so many levels because, you know, we lost David Bowie. But then Caroline also, you know, unfortunately passes away as well. But so I, did you have kind of a, a kind of a period knowing that that it was going to sort of it was going to happen soon? Well, she'd been ill for a long time. So she'd been diagnosed a few years before that and had been treating it alternately you know alternative medicine and stuff and it it worked up to a point and then it started to get bad and she'd uh she'd taken this kind of salve that you could get which and administer it herself but there's basically nobody looking after you at that point and 
and the doctors were saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? And it, from that point, which was probably about three years before she died, it was pretty horrendous to be quite honest. It was, and it was awful. And um, yeah, there was hope, you know, and then there was no hope, you know, it was just that awful, awful thing. Yeah. God, alternative. So was this kind of alternative medicine trying to cure cancer by the chance? It was something that, yeah, it's something, you know, that's around that it's a bit like an acid, so you, you place it on the point of the tumour or whatever, and it basically literally eats into the skin and it's supposed to eat the tumour, but at the same time it, it attacks the tissues all around it and, you know, and, and then your body is under attack from something else, you know. Mm. That was... That was kind of it. It was from that point that it became, you know, uh, like, oh my God, you know, I don't know how can I pull back from this. So yeah, it was, it was awful, to be honest. It was, uh, you know, a very sad time. Oh, that is, yeah, that is, a, that is hard work, actually. That's, um, yeah, well, no, because I, I also, bizarrely, at the end of 2015, I got diagnosed with cancer, but to be honest, it was like, I was just like straight hospital surgeon, like, let's really just get straight into here. And I had a friend, because I used to hang out with quite a new, lot, lot of new agey people, and I said, do you think of doing anything alternative? And it was like, I think that point where you think, you've got to be kidding me, you know, this is not, this is not the time, you know. Just well, like, we, we kind of... You know, we because basically at some point during that period where I wasn't doing music, I got involved in a lot of the healing arts. So I was kind of I knew a lot about these different things, but I wasn't one of these people that was saying, "No, no, you've got to forget conventional medicine." I kind of was open to both sides. I think they can. I was hoping those two things would work together, but for Caroline's point of view, she just didn't want anything to do with the Western approach. Um, and initially it, it, it started to work for her, but then it didn't. And, yeah. uh, you know, it became apparent that there wasn't any, there were no more choices left. And um, ultimately it was, you know, she was told if you don't do this now, you know, you might not be here by a certain time. And, you know, she lasted a little bit longer, but, you know, the writing was on the wall, I'm afraid. Jeez, Are you all right there now? Are you okay? Yeah, um, you know, it was kind of one of those ones which I suppose it was kind of, um, yeah, I'd sort of gone to the doctors not feeling great and, and they went, oh, this was a bit strange. And they gave me a scan and then they did the MRI scan. So it was quite quick in a way. And it was like, they were looking for one thing and they went, actually, that seems okay, but we found something else. That was how it worked. It was like, right, something's on your we can see there's a problem with your kidney. It's like, what? You know, it's like the whole thing's a bit surreal. It's a bit like, so it's like, right, so we're going to have to get you into surgery ASAP. And it's like, but I feel fine. It's like, no, there's something that you need to be opened up and sorted out quite quickly. Because, um, and yeah, I mean, it was kind of, it was like sitting there being told this thing and you're just thinking, I've never thought I'd hear those words. You know, it's like walking out of the hospital going, fuck. I can't believe I've just been told I've got cancer. It's like the, the one thing you don't expect, you know, especially when you feel quite well. But yeah, and, and then David Bowie, you know, that thing happened, you know, he died and it was like, it was all a bit strange. And then luckily they got it. And I'm now in that kind of having scans every year or whatever, just to keep an eye on it. But they seem to say, look, that's, it's, I think we were okay. But it's like, you, you know, 
it also, with just without going into too much detail, when I was very young, like at the age of four, I was asthmatic. So I was always been asthmatic. So health and me is kind of a big gig, really. So I've always been very careful about it. And, um, yeah, I don't take it for granted, really. So um, a bit of a downer, isn't it? So, um, yeah, but we, we have to keep on. It's life, isn't it? It's reality, you know. It is a bit too much reality, as they said in Spinal Tap. Yeah, well, you know, it is. And, you know, the David Bowie thing was, I think, you know, for all of us that love our music, that was just ridiculous, you know, yeah. to think that he died. You know, it was, it was, you know, because we've known him all our lives kind of thing. And he was always know. there. He was always there with the expectations of yeah. a new album. But and with the last album, you know, that I, mean, I remember buying it the day it came out and just being so thrilled that he just, made the most fantastic album and my wife you know she was not a David Bowie fan particularly but because I get playing it all the time she actually was going well it's actually it's great it's really good and then the Monday it's like no no he's gone because I was thinking maybe he will do gigs you know that's what I was thinking yes I know I, I was thinking this is it I think perhaps he's going to be going to Glastonbury perhaps we'll need to go to Glastonbury <laughs> And it's like, oh shit, that's terrible. But um, yeah, I know there's some really, really strange thoughts. Yeah. So then, I mean, since then, obviously that's kind of a massive moment. What have you, what, what's your sort of kind of um, idea of, you know, making music and doing music in the well, future? Well, you know, just sort of maybe a couple of years before Caroline died, this Italian record company contacted us and, they love Shelley Norfin and said, would you make another album? And we said, yeah, okay. But Caroline wasn't well and we just let it, it kind of got strung out a bit and then obviously Caroline died. And uh, so we couldn't do it. And then they came back to me and said, would you make an album? You know, we'd really like an album from you. And I was like, oh, I'm just not sure. Cause I really wasn't. It's not that I didn't want to do me. I just, you know, I've done it all my life with Caroline. And so it was, it's not even that I thought I couldn't do it. I just didn't. I just didn't know, to be honest. And then a bit of time went on, and they kept asking, and really nice people. Then I thought, oh, I love music, so I'm just going to see what I can do. So I'm doing it. So I, I started it in Italy just before COVID hit, and I had to let them put it on the back <laughs> And now I'm about to go out on the fourth of November uh, to. I don't know whether it'll be finished, but I hope so. But I've got it's it's all strings and stuff, my usual. So, <laughs> and it's quite poppy. It's it's not it's it's different to it's, to be quite honest. Anybody that knows Shelley North will go, yeah, I can recognise that. But it's, yes. but material wise, it's it's probably a little bit more upbeat, but it's still got lots of the elements of strings and things with it. Strings work great. And do you and and with your you've got the orchestra or you know the, the strings, but do you also have are you doing the vocals on this or will you be Yeah, mo mostly at the moment I am and people keep saying they're good and they're fine and they're great. But I don't know yet. So I'm I'm still uh I'm toying with the idea of using some other vocalist as a as a really great singer in Italy called Annie Barbazzo who wants to do stuff and as someone here who's a really great vocalist, um, Inky, who's uh, Caroline's daughter. She's put some vocals on for me, which is just fantastic for me. It's an honor because she, she's like my daughter. And yeah. so that's, that, that's fantastic. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I'm not sure because I'm, I'm still piecing it together. So I've kind of got the songs and I've, I've done lots of the arranging. I've 
just done some horn sections here, which I've never done horn sections particularly, which is great. So that was good fun. Um, so it's coming together and it, you know, I, I have no expectation. In fact, I'm more like, you know, the way I think about it is, well, they didn't get Shane Wolfen particularly, so they might not get this. Will you, will, you, will you go under the name of the band? No, no, I don't, I don't I'm probably, I probably won't even go under the name of myself either. I'm not, I, I'm not, I haven't got the thing of I need to be the front part. I, I love the, I love making the music and I really want to play live with it. Mm. Um, but I kind of, I, I can't explain it. I don't need to be, probably especially the age I am, I don't need to be seen as this focal point to, 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 to what's happening. Um, but we'll have to see, because I'm, you know, I keep toying with different names for it and uh, how, how I could pull it off live. I mean, I know in Italy they, they they want me to do gigs with it as well, which is great. But I'd have to, have to think about it to be quite. Well, it's funny because I did an interview, I think, with Sarah Jane Morris. This was, you know, a while back, and it's like, God, I'm really big in Italy. They want me to play, go and play in Italy. So it's, that's why I mentioned Italy because there seems to be some art, some artists who go, Yeah, Italy loves me. I don't well, know they why. they've got they've certainly got a sort of passion which I don't see here. I mean, they're in Italy. They think their perception is that Shelley and Orphan were massive because they just say, how could it not be? They don't understand, which is really nice for me. They're just going, but, and <clears throat> Max is the main guy. Basically, it's it's a label called Manticore, which was actually set up by Emerson, Lake and Palmer. And the studio that I'm recording in, I think was Greg Lake's studio. Wow. That's a, well, this whole prog thing attached to it, and I'm not prog at all. And in fact, prog isn't my favorite sort of music. But the guy, Max Marcini, he was, I think, a really well-known Italian journalist over the years. Um, and he, the first Shelley and Orphan album is one of his favourite albums ever. And he's got something like 27,000 albums, I think he's got. And, uh, you know, we, and, and I, I love that. And he's really, like, he just really just, you know, if we start talking about it, he's, like, so enthusiastic, which is great. And um, it's lovely to have that without having to think, oh, I've got to convince people, I've got to, you know... He, he just says, look, I know what you do. I love what you do. And he's heard what I'm doing. He comes in the studio all the time. And, you know, he's saying, it's fantastic. I just want to get it for you. I want it out. You know, we, you know, we'll do this, we'll do that. It's lovely to have that enthusiasm, to be honest. And just the fact that I don't have to deal with sort of normal rec companies and that, that sort of business. Because it's, you know, it's, it's such a tricky thing. It really is, you know, yes. trying to do. Because people, you know, can sort of make or break you by just you know journalists saying this band is shit or whatever they do you know people read it people just hear it you know it will see it in print and, and that's that can be the end of something yes it's a it's a, yeah the the consequence is quite horrendous actually isn't it so um yeah that's creative yeah. people we're all fragile you know we listen to the bad points more than we do the good points i think yeah, I know. I mean, you know, I've heard heard a few people who who were really devastated by that experience and kind of de derails them. But yeah, it's a tricky one. I mean, yeah, it's tricky, tricky. I mean, one thing that's just happened during the lockdown in well, the last few years, a lot of people have either been writing their book or certainly archiving. Have you? I mean, you had the box set of material, but do you also have sort of an archive of all the gigs you played and posters and flyers that you think, God, one day I should try and do something with this rather than just let it all kind of... I've, I've got bits and pieces, but the, the truth of it is, if I'm being honest, I don't think there's enough people out there that would want it. And I'm not being, you know, I, I really mean it. I mean, I, 
you know, we're showing off in a very odd band. I think quite a few people know us or know of us, but they haven't actually gone out and bought the records necessarily, which quite an, we're an odd band. I tried to fit myself because I follow music. I think, where do we actually fit in this? I mean, like there's, there's, you know, you showed me that book at the beginning. And there's one book I saw. I forget who's written, but I think it might even be a rough trade book. But the guy mentions this once in it, and he says something like the terminably awful Shelley and Orphan. You know, it's like really. So people would feel that way about us. And I used to think, why? I don't get it. You don't even know me. You've never even spoken to me. You just look at the, what we look like and listen to the music and you've decided that's the end of that they are dreadful you know because we didn't do the smith thing we didn't try to be indie poses or or have an image in that way we were just just being it's not i'm not even saying we're being ordinary we like to dress up a bit and do stuff but that's part of being in a band there's nothing yeah nothing unusual about it you know I know it's a tricky one, and just and just lastly, I mean, if there was something that you could have said to your like sixteen or eighteen year old self, start now. Is there is there a few kind of words of wisdom that you've you would have just imparted, or just said, well, I have to keep doing that, or actually, I would have, I would look out for this, or focus a bit more on that. I think if, if you know, I would, I would have. I don't know if it's whether it's passing on wisdom, but I, I definitely would have liked a bit more of a formal musical education because you know I've got tons of ideas in creative things but not the ability so I create things which which sound very convincing I think in, you know in terms of like when people called us middle class music students if they really knew how I'd done that, sitting down with a violin and playing noodling on a guitar and I'm not no great musician and guitarist either it was more about the ideas coming through you. Mm. So I, I never think, you know, with, even with the things that I think are really good that we've done, I don't think, ah, that's me. I, sometimes when you get like the Cabaret Bell moment for me, it's like, that came from somewhere else. That was a gift. There's something, it's such a hard thing to, to put into words, but something happens that somehow electricity or something comes together and, and creates this thing and suddenly it exists, but it's come through you, mm -hmm. you know doesn't mean just because it doesn't mean everybody's going to get it it just means it's been created it's happened that's it you know it's it can't be undone and and i think you know funny sort of way shelly northern one of those things it had a group like shelly northern had to exist at some point you know that's how i see it and and it really existed in its purest form on, on that first album because at that point in time that all the gigs were done with a string chair and oboe and piano and it wasn't we didn't we weren't adding electric guitars and drums and becoming a little bit by the time we did the cure tour that's what we were doing we had drums we still had violin but it just wouldn't have been viable playing you know sort of arenas and things with a string trio and oboe yeah. so we had to we get this out and that's how it changed but you know there there hasn't been a group like Shelley and Orphan you know and that that that's because it's the two people in it that created it coming together at the end of the day and, and putting your creative imaginings into into you know reality making them part of the musical pop fabric that that you know keeps growing every year you yeah know, we, we're just we're just a part of of that a little thread in it you know and that's what makes the 80s 80s seem so fascinating doesn't it because there was so many interesting and yeah 
quick curious. So, yeah, look at the cocktails. I mean, the cocktails just, you know, if somebody tries to copy the cocktails, you say they're copying the cocktails because they, they had their own thing. You know, they, they created it. It's not even just the sound, it's the melodies. And then Liz with their extraordinary voice. You know, there's so many wonderful things that, that, that came out. You know, yeah. and some of them, some of them still go, still go, the Pixies and things like that, they're still going well and still writing well and without having to stray too far out of the, you know, realms of what they used to do. This is true, this is true. But and that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. I know we were just going to get a bit emotional there and say goodbye, so you don't really need to hear that. But uh, massive thanks to Jim for giving me the time for the, that interview. That was Shelley Ann Orphan. Find out, find out more about them and their box set on various websites. You'll have to Google. Anyway, um, I think there's a couple of albums on Spotify as well, so check it out. Anyway, a massive thank you again, and um, this has been David Eastall's C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And also, all these have been archived, um, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just do C86 Show. It's that simple. Check it out. Have a great week, and stay safe.